Well, good morning. How is everybody? Well, is it cold enough this morning? Not too bad. Not bad. All right. Well, we're going to jump into Revelation 2 today. This is the safe part of Revelation. Every time I've heard Revelation preached, this is the the seven churches or the places that it's okay to talk about, right? Because it's not too crazy. So remember, we're in what is the cradle, the nursery of the original church uh, in what is today Turkey. Uh, In ancient times, Ionia, Greece. Uh, there are seven churches, uh, sort of the chief of which we'll talk about today, Ephesus. Um, I think, do, do we have the map? Uh, yeah, just to uh, orient ourselves. Uh, so it all starts right in here, uh, but it has shifted north. There are obviously, as Paul showed us, large uh, Jewish communities that served as a springboard for uh, the message of the gospel to get out. In terms of economics, uh, this area uh, for the Roman Empire is is crucial. Uh, trade routes are coming from Egypt. They're coming from the east, and then they're coming from Europe. And so this very fertile region, very mountainous region in, again, what is today Turkey, Asia Minor, is this just commercial uh, bed of, of success uh, for the, the movement of Rome. So we're going to go to Ephesus today. Uh, which has a pretty good pedigree. What, uh, what led to the start of the church in Ephesus? Do you remember? Paul. Paul, yeah, he starts the church in Ephesus. Uh, so we, we sort of know the history. Does anything stick out in your mind about the church in Ephesus? What, uh, what happens there? They got a letter written to him. Well, that's that's happening here today. Yeah, yeah. But uh, thinking back towards Acts, what else? What else happened? Did Paul have a good time in Ephesus? Yeah, yeah he got beat up. What well, What did he do to upset everybody so much? Shut down the markets. Yeah, and what What were they selling? Idols, yeah, little silver idols to the local goddess of Ephesus. So, real quick, uh, tourist uh, trap here, Ephesus. Ephesus is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, our best estimates, and there is a weird science to this, but about 250,000 people, which is a lot in the ancient world. Because 250,000 stinking people with no uh, indoor plumbing? How does all that work? Everybody makes a mess several times a day, and then they do it again the next day. So 250,000, it's, it's a lot of people. But it is a, a hub of transit, like we said. Three trade routes all converge on Ephesus. 
Ephesus is an old city. Uh, the coastal region that we're talking about in Turkey was really part of Greece. And think about it. It will be part of the Christian world for uh, really till America is discovered. Uh, it will pass as Christianity takes over in the Roman Empire. It will stay Christian. It will stay uh, part of the church, the Eastern Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, until uh, the 15th century. Uh, it's just when the Turks invade and take it out. So uh, there, there, there's a lot of history there. But a uh, very ancient city um, was a city before even the Romans and the Greeks got there. And they had a very ancient goddess. Um, and you know her well. Uh, she is Artemis, goddess of the hunt. There she is in all of her beauty. Da, da, da. You have wondered in your life where the practice of Easter eggs came from. They were Yeah, she, uh, she, she's original combat mama, right? Fire in the hole. Um, so now you know what the idols were that Paul was saying, yeah, we don't, uh, we don't need this. So other than breast cancer gone bad, um, what would this possibly convey to ancient people? Yep. No matter what happens, she is all providing. Yeah, everybody, everybody's got a, a place to come and enjoy. Uh, so uh, she is revered. And as crazy as this sounds, uh, there is a bit of a kind of biblical, not connection to her, but, but overlap. Um, El Shaddai. So El, we're familiar with, uh, generic name for God, also the name of a Canaanite God, but uh, Shaddai is plural. So who is that? Uh, Amy Grant? El Shaddai. Anyway, so a shod is both in Hebrew a mountain and a boob, a breast. So the God who we translate it as provides, um, or sometimes God Almighty, which is what people usually say when they see something like that, right? God Almighty. Um, so in the Hebrew context, they were simply saying God provides for us. Um, so the God of the mountain or the God of the breast. Anyway, I, I'm not trying to say God ever looked like that. I'm just saying this is an ancient way of describing a God that meets all of your needs, a God that uh, is 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 open to all takers, right? Um, so this is the goddess of of Ephesus. Yeah. I know Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world. Was it active when this letter was written? It was. Um, it's actually her temple. It's Artemis's temple. So, like he's saying, um, the, the seven wonders of the world, this is her temple. It was, uh, in its prime, it, it's argued in Roman uh, times, this may not have been true, but this was the largest sort of freestanding temple uh, in 
originally the the Greek world, the Hellenistic world. It was a massive, a massive tent or a temple. And like Paul's uh, journeys there show, people are making pilgrimages. They're buying their little several idols. Uh, so it is uh, economic hub. It is one of the largest cities. And we'll see in context... Uh, it, it is really, really tied to the, the Roman emperors. So before I go too much further into the history of Ephesus, I want to read the scripture uh, just to sort of familiarize us uh, with it. Uh, there's there a few threads there we're going to pick out, uh, and then we're going to we're going to do some context. If 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 ever you remember anything I say, which you probably don't need to remember most of what I say, but Scripture is a tree. If you pull it out of its ground and try to carry it around, you're you're going to miss it. You're just going to kill it. Christianity usually goes off road when we pull Scripture out of its context. We want those details. Um, somewhere along the way, I think we got sold a bill of goods that if you read Gone with the Wind, will you understand the American Civil War? No. No. In the same way, as dutifully as we can read Scripture sometimes, we're not going to get the full meaning unless we understand the time and the place that God gave it. We want this. And sometimes when we don't have it, we make it up. If you know the context of Revelation, it's not nearly as crazy as what people make it. Remember, with Revelation, we're dealing with references to what happened in the past at the end of the Old Testament. We're dealing with events that are happening in the time of John's life. And we're also dealing with projections in the future. Okay, Revelation is not just about the future. It's understanding the end times through this lens of what happened, what's happening now, and what will happen. So you gotta, you gotta get all three. Otherwise, it's just a psychological test and how crazy you are. So, uh, let's start chapter two. Uh, Jesus speaking. He is giving, remember, the apocalypse, the meaning, the, the real truth, the understanding, not just the end times, but what all this means. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So this is Jesus. This is the church. This is the purpose of all of this. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patience. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with an ear to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what is what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious... 
I will give the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Okay, pretty straightforward. Jesus is happy with some things. He's displeased with others. He's challenging them. There is a warning. But what what is all this? Is it just a report card of how the church is doing? What is the real impetus behind Jesus sort of making these these pronouncements? So I need to back up. I'm not a big fan of them, but uh, we we got to learn some Roman history here. Uh, this is dominating. Uh, John's world and his life. <coughs> Three Roman emperors we have to know. Towards the end of the first century, so we're dealing with the 60s, 60 AD, uh, to probably the mid-90s AD. This is towards the end of John's life. Well, it is the end of John's life. There is a massive revolt in Judea when the Jews turn against, this starts in 66 AD, the Jews turn against Rome, and for a period, they drive them out. The Romans send legions, they can't have this, they're bullies, right, and anybody that resists the bullies could maybe inspire others to resist them. Uh, So the Romans send a general named Vespasian, who is our father figure here. Uh, His main goal towards the end of the war is to besiege Jerusalem. And it is, by all accounts, one of the most brutal uh, episodes uh, in, in really all Roman history. You have Jewish determination uh, matched against Roman uh, engineering for violence. So in the midst of the siege of Jerusalem, and it takes about two years and some change, uh, Vespasian, who is the general in charge of all this, is called back to Rome to become emperor. Uh, the line of Caesar has died out, and so this Vespasian uh, goes back and he becomes emperor. Now he has two sons, Titus, who stays and continues the siege and eventually will uh, complete the siege, destroy Jerusalem, burn down the temple, and generally make a mess of things. Uh, the, the second guy, Titus, uh, will eventually leave uh, Judea, the victorious, and then when his father dies, he will go back to Rome and become the next emperor. When Titus dies, there is a second son, the youngest son, named Domitian. And then he becomes the emperor. Much of what we're dealing with, Revelation, is during the reign of Domitian, this youngest son. Now, he didn't fight in the war. Uh, he's, he's nuts. Uh, we talked about him a little bit. Uh, he, yeah, he, here's a picture of him. Isn't he beautiful? Yeah, he's uh, he lost his nose. A um, couple of things about him. Uh, he insisted. Does anybody remember what what does he in, insist that he be called? Lord and God. Lord and God. Yeah. Uh, Can I have to help me with the Latin here? Uh, Dominus et Deus. Even his wife has to refer to him as Lord and God. 
Okay, so he he's really elevating this this Roman sense of um, we're not just uh, emperors, we're not just precepts, uh, we are gods. Um, he also is balding, which he's very sensitive about, <clears throat> and uh, which is funny. He wears wigs, and I mean, he's he's really uh, kind of maniacal. Um, but he is one of the greatest persecutors of the church in the beginning. He is the one that sends uh, John to Patmos. He's the one that is killing uh, most of the the apostles. Uh, incredibly brutal, brutal person. Uh, you will see his his cult reflected in a lot of um, a lot of the things that Revelation is saying. One of the things that he does uh, in his sort of insanity is he has priests of Jupiter follow him around. Uh, wherever he goes in public, and they will constantly be like his backup choir. Uh, they will be singing his glory. They will be praising him. Now, they are marked by their dress. So they wear white robes of a priestly class in, in the Roman version, and they wear gold crowns. And so wherever he is going, uh, he has sort of his entourage of these white-clad, gold-wearing uh, um, priests. Again, this is something that's, that's going to come up uh, for us again and again. Now, uh, one of the things he does in order to increase his popularity is reinstate the Olympic Games. Now, this was an old Greek custom. Um, Romans loved to borrow things from the Greeks, and so uh, he will bring them back. Um, I think we have some photos of some of the amphitheaters and stuff that he's building in order to hold these Olympic Games. But um, he, he doesn't call them the Olympic Games. He calls them the Domitian Games. So... It's got a nice ring to it, right? Um, and they are a pageant uh, for his his megalomania. Let me share a uh, quote from a Roman senator at the time, a guy named Suetonius, and he he tells us about the, the reinstitution of the games and what uh, Domitian is doing in the midst of it. So Domitian presided at the competitions in half boots clad in a purple toga of the Greek fashion and wearing upon his head a golden crown with a figure of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. So they're sort of picking uh, the the base Roman gods and then this uh, this bull cult, the sun cult uh, from the east. So he's, he's really presenting himself as a divine figure. Uh, while by his side sat the priests of Jupiter and the college of the Flavius. So these are his priests. Um, so continuing on. Similarly dressed, except for the crowns they bore, bore his image. He celebrated the Olympics uh, to every year in honor of Minerva at his Albion uh, Villa, Suetonius. So what he does is 
he at this this Olympic uh, event, all of the uh, representatives from the Roman world come with their teams, right? And so he's standing up there. He has his little entourage. He's wearing his golden crown. And he will pronounce judgment, praise and judgment on every representative that comes by. So he will say, you know, from, let's say, the city of Delphi, you have done this very well but I have this against you. And so you have this weird kind of setting that this is what people are seeing, if you will, on the news, uh, that this man who has elevated himself, he thinks he's a god, he's acting like a god, he's wearing the accoutrements of a god, he has priests that are are following him around, and he is, in a sense, giving a, a report card to the Roman world. You have done this well. You have not done this well. And so you see John saying, "Mm, actually, I had a conversation with Jesus. And it's not about this nutcase uh, that thinks he's in charge of the world. It's really about Jesus who holds the lamps, who holds the stars in his hands, really controls what's going on in the world. Um, You may see horrible things on television, but it's not, it's not real. Uh, these Olympic games are, are just a, a, a fantasy. So, this is gonna come back for us, uh, in, in a big, big way. There are two locations, uh, that this cult, uh, for Domitian are, are really, uh, in a high, high gear. One is Rome. And then he needed another place in the east, maybe a place where the interstates intersected, a place with a large population. Um, I wonder where that could be. Yeah, it's it's Ephesus. And so there is a massive structure built trying to outdo the temple. So this is the entrance to Ephesus itself. Um, but it's, it's another one, Ken, um, he builds this, uh, Domitian, uh, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's not it, it's, it's a reconstruction. He, he builds uh, a larger temple, um, with a massive statue of himself on top, um, And one of the photos that I did not bring, uh, I'll have to, um, when you look at uh, pictures of Domitian, statues in particular, he's almost always holding a scroll. Now this scroll is a representation of all of his titles. As strange as it sounds, uh, when you become, yeah, the it's not really a king of Rome, but when you become uh, this 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 precept, this leader. Remember, they used to elect uh, their leaders. Uh, you're, you're given uh, civic titles, but you're also given religious priesthoods. Uh, so, uh, one of the titles of the Roman emperor is uh, um, Pontiff Maximus. 
which sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, it's one of the titles of the Pope. And so here this is carried carried over. But anyway, so he carries the scroll. And it's a representation of his uh, authority uh, that he is... He is the guy in charge. He is the king. He is uh, the emperor. Would you be surprised to learn that this scroll is written on both sides? Uh, This scroll is sealed with seven seals. And there's only one person in the Roman world equipped with the authority to open all of this. And that would be, in Domitian's eyes, Who has the authority to open the scroll? Yeah, him. And again, you'll see John say, "Mm, no, there's actually a scroll. And we'll see what that scroll is. It's written on two sides. I have seven seals. But it's not this little brat that came from a family of generals. It is Jesus Christ. He is... He is the one, and this scroll is the word of God. It's not, you know, just this window dressing uh, that we got from from Nero. So that's probably all of the history. Um, can, can, can we do the uh, the statue of Nero, uh, the the big one? Yeah. So this is all that remains of a 37-foot-tall statue that was on the top of the temple complex that Domitian built for himself in Ephesus. So it was this massive statue. And you sort of see his his hand up there. It doesn't have the scroll. There's another one I have I didn't bring of him holding the scroll. I'll, I'll bring it next week. But most of his are always shown holding the scroll. So... As you approached Ephesus, uh, even bigger than Artemis's temple, uh, would be uh, Domitian standing up there with his full head of hair, looking good, and holding up this scroll. Yeah. He did. Yeah, he did. It's broke off. Yeah. Um, you know, this was a massive, massive statue, and and uh, all we have left is like that. Uh, that arm is like nine feet. Uh, it's big. It's it's really, really big. So, but nobody's found his nose. <laughs> so there you go. So. You get some of the context, right? You've got this maniacal uh, figure in the background, and here uh, Jesus is coming to present the greater truth, the the apocalypse. So let me stop. That's a lot of history. Are we okay? Making sense? Clear as mud, Kurt. All right. So let's go back to our text. We'll we'll pick up in in verse 2. So I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. So who did Paul leave in charge of the church in Ephesus? Remember? Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's two ladies. Uh, 
Yeah, Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. Uh, now we don't know that they are the only leaders, but he certainly singles them out in the letters. And uh, so, by by all the chances, you know, you let the lady drive your truck and she wrecks it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Do what? Priscilla's husband, right? Uh, in the purple trade, purple dye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I will too. No, I thought we thought they were they, they were two ladies, but it's uh, just because Paul references them in a letter doesn't mean necessarily that they're in charge. But um, by all accounts. Um, they, they, the church does extremely well. Uh, like we said, this is a big town. It's a, uh, a thriving town. Jewish population there because of the trade. They, uh, they grow. Uh, they grow beyond, uh, just the synagogues and they start reaching other people. Uh, this is a hard town. Uh, to uh, be a Jew. It's a hard time to be a Jew and even harder time to be Christians. Remember the Romans, particularly during the revolt in Judea, do not distinguish a great deal uh, between Jews and Christians. They, they think it's just a sect of Judaism. Uh, there were lots of types of Jews at that time, just like there's lots of types of Christians now. Uh, so the, the Romans just lumped them together. But one of the things that becomes dominant in in Ephesus, uh, you literally have this cult uh, to Domitian. Um, this is his eastern uh, town where he's revered, is that you will have to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. You will have to acknowledge that Domitian is Lord and God. And one of the things the early church is going to struggle with and John is is really helping them through is the fact that there is no other God except for Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is this is fundamental. Part of civic duty, part of being able to go to the agora. Uh, the agora is uh, sort of the the marketplace, uh, but it's it's bigger than that. It's it's the the place of business. It's not just necessarily where you're uh, buying things from day to day. More than the supermarket, it's kind of Wall Street. Uh, you have to make sacrifice to the emperor. Uh, you have to make sort of this public acknowledgement that you support the God of Ephesus and you support the God of the Roman Empire. So what do you do as a Christian, right? In order to do business, in order to survive, do you, do you sacrifice? Do you publicly acknowledge that Domitian is Lord and God? As a Methodist minister or a Methodist bishop once told me, eh, just do what you have to and then confess later. No, I'm kidding. Um, would you do it? Would you not do it? In the end, it wouldn't matter. You could close your door and speak German all day or... Italian, but you go on the street and you speak English. 
Well, yeah, but in order to, you know, you want to sell your purple dye, and so you have to go out in public and acknowledge. Well, that's what many, many of them do, right? They will say, you know, I got to do what I got to do. You know, if I'm living in Nazi Germany, and I know what Hitler will do to me, I still go to church, I still believe in Jesus, but will I join the Nazi party? Yeah. Would it be like eating meat off or die? I think it's even higher than that, right? This is a public declaration of who is God. Now, one of the biggest disputes the early church is going to have is between those that said, no, I am not going to do this. I'm not going to publicly acknowledge somebody else. And they pay a terrible, terrible price for it. Many of them are killed and slaughtered. And then there's the other half of the group that said, eh, what does it matter? Let's be realistic. We're in Rome. We've got to do what the Romans. This guy's a nutcase. I don't want him to kill my family. So I'm going to do what I have to to survive. And the two struggles will be between the two halves of the church. Those that endured the persecution want to throw out those that didn't. And so this is kind of what Jesus is wading into here. Um, so, uh, I know the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patience endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. Uh, Jesus is getting into this, right? Um, you have examined the claims of those who said they are apostles but are not. Well, good morning. How is everybody? Well, is it cold enough this morning? Not too bad. Not bad. All right. Well, we're going to jump into Revelation 2 today. This is the safe part of Revelation. Every time I've heard Revelation preached, this is the the seven churches or the places that it's okay to talk about, right? Because it's not too crazy. So remember, we're in what is the cradle, the nursery of the original church uh, in what is today Turkey. Uh, In ancient times, Ionia, Greece. Uh, There are seven churches, uh, sort of the chief of which we'll talk about today, Ephesus. Um, I think, do do we have the map? Uh, Yeah, just to uh, orient ourselves. Uh, So it all starts right in here, uh, but it has shifted north. 
There are obviously, as Paul showed us, large uh, Jewish communities that served as a springboard for uh, the message of the gospel to get out. In terms of economics, uh, this area uh, for the Roman Empire is is crucial. Uh, trade routes are coming from Egypt. They're coming from the east, and then they're coming from Europe. And so this very fertile region, very mountainous region, in, again, what is today Turkey, Asia Minor, is this just commercial uh, bed of, of success uh, for the, the movement of Rome. So we're going to go to Ephesus today. Uh, which has a pretty good pedigree. What, uh, what led to the start of the church in Ephesus? Do you remember? Paul. Paul, yeah, he starts the church in Ephesus. Uh, so we, we sort of know the history. Does anything stick out in your mind about the church in Ephesus? What, uh, what happens there? They got a letter written to it. Well, that's that's happening here today. Yeah, yeah. But uh, thinking back towards Acts, what else? What else happened? Did Paul have a good time in Ephesus? Yeah, he got beat up. What what did he do to upset everybody so much? Shut down the markets. Yeah, and what what were they selling? Idols, yeah, little silver idols to the local goddess of Ephesus. So, real quick, uh, tourist uh, trap here, Ephesus. Ephesus is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, our best estimates, and there is a weird science to this, but about 250,000 people, which is a lot in the ancient world. Because 250,000 stinking people with no uh, indoor plumbing? How does all that work? Everybody makes a mess several times a day, and then they do it again the next day. So 250,000, it's, it's a lot of people. But it is a, a hub of transit, like we said, three trade routes all converge on Ephesus. Ephesus is an old city. Uh, the coastal region that we're talking about in Turkey was really part of Greece. And think about it. It will be part of the Christian world for uh, really till America is discovered. Uh, it will pass as Christianity takes over in the Roman Empire. It will stay Christian. It will stay uh part of the church, the Eastern Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, until uh, the 15th century. Uh, it's just when the Turks invade and take it out. So uh, there, there, there's a lot of history there. But a uh, very ancient city um, was a city before even the Romans and the Greeks got there, and they had a very ancient goddess. Um, and you know her well. Uh, she is Artemis, goddess of the hunt. There she is in all of her beauty. Dun, dun, dun. You have wondered in your life where the practice of Easter eggs came from. Yeah, are, yeah she, uh, she, she's original combat mama, right? Fire in the hole. Um, so now you know what the idols were. 
that Paul was saying, yeah, we don't, uh, we don't need this. So, other than breast cancer gone bad, um, what would this possibly convey to ancient people? Yep. No matter what happens, she is all providing. Yeah, everybody, everybody's got a, a place to come and enjoy. Uh, so uh, she is revered. And as crazy as this sounds, uh, there is a bit of a kind of biblical, not connection to her, but, but overlap. Um, El Shaddai. So El, we're familiar with, uh, generic name for God, also the name of a Canaanite God, but uh, Shaddai is plural. So who is that? Uh, Amy Grant? El Shaddai. Anyway, so a shod is both in Hebrew a mountain and a boob, a breast. So the God who we translate it as provides, um, or sometimes God Almighty, which is what people usually say when they see something like that, right? God Almighty. Um, so in the Hebrew context, they were simply saying God provides for us. Um, so the God of the mountain or the God of the breast. Anyway, I, I'm not trying to say God ever looked like that. I'm just saying this is an ancient way of describing a God that meets all of your needs, a God that uh, is 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 open to all takers, right? Um, so this is the goddess of of Ephesus. Yeah. I know Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world. Was it when this letter was written? It was. Um, it's actually her temple. It's Artemis' temple. So, like he's saying, um, the, the seven wonders of the world, this is her temple. It was, uh, in its prime, it, it's argued in Roman uh, times, this may not have been true, but this was the largest sort of freestanding temple uh, in originally the the Greek world, the Hellenistic world. It was a massive, a massive tent or temple. And like Paul's uh, journeys there show, people are making pilgrimages. They're buying their little several idols. Uh, So it is uh, economic hub. It is one of the largest cities. And we'll see in context... uh, it is really, really tied to the, the Roman emperors. So before I go too much further into the history of Ephesus, I want to read the scripture uh, just to sort of familiarize us uh, with it. Uh, there's there a few threads there we're going to pick out, uh, and then we're going to we're going to do some context. If 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 ever you remember anything I say, which you probably don't need to remember most of what I say, but Scripture is a tree. If you pull it out of its ground and try to carry it around, you're you're gonna miss it. You're just gonna kill it. Christianity usually goes off road when we pull Scripture out of its context. We want those details. Um, somewhere along the way, I think we got sold a bill of goods that if you read Gone with the Wind, will you understand the American Civil War? No. No. 
In the same way, as dutifully as we can read Scripture sometimes, we're not going to get the full meaning unless we understand the time and the place that God gave it. We want this, and sometimes when we don't have it, we make it up. If you know the context of Revelation, it's not nearly as crazy as what people make it. Remember, with Revelation, we're dealing with references to what happened in the past, at the end of the Old Testament, we're dealing with events that are happening in the time of John's life, and we're also dealing with projections in the future. Okay, Revelation is not just about the future. It's understanding the end times through this lens of what happened, what's happening now, and what will happen. So you gotta, you gotta get all three. Otherwise, it's just a psychological test on how crazy you are. So, uh, let's start chapter 2 uh, Jesus speaking he is giving remember the apocalypse the meaning the, the real truth the understanding not just the end times but what all this means write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus this is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands So this is Jesus. This is the church. This is the purpose of all of this. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patience. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with the ear to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what is what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Okay, pretty straightforward. Jesus is happy with some things. He's displeased with others. He's challenging them. There is a warning. But what what is all this? Is it just a report card of how the church is doing? What is the real impetus behind Jesus sort of making these these pronouncements. So I 